Um, it's a, a pleasure and a privilege to come and to be able to uh, speak to you again this morning. Um, I'm really enjoying... Oh, now, do I have a clicker that sort of will get me through the... Whatever. Thanks, Alan. That's good. I'm really enjoying um, the fact that um, we're working to a theme this year. For those of you who are visiting, um, we're working to a theme about um, being God's people in exile. And uh, I, I really enjoy, I've been enjoying that fact that we've been working under that particular banner, looking at different books in the, in the Bible. And our, our key verse has been this one here, for those who haven't seen it before, Jeremiah 29. Uh, and the fact that we, as God's people, living in a society that uh, basically is rejecting God, uh, are living as exiles. And what is God calling us to do? We've been wrestling with that idea um, earlier on in the year, uh, and then through the book of Esther, and now through the book of First Peter. And uh, last week, um, Graham reminded us that both Peter living in the New Testament times and us living today in the world um, may be fighting different battles but it's really the same Babylon uh, to, to with which we do battle and Babylon represents that human desire to raise ourselves higher than God as Josh said the week before starting with the Tower of Babel uh, is this man's desire to put something in the place of God uh, and to raise ourselves up as above God. And I guess that's, that's humanism, isn't it? That's what humanism's about. It's what our society is about, putting something else in the place of God. Graham also reminded us last week that this letter of First Peter uh, was written uh, for us, but not necessarily to us. And that while we hold to the unchanging message and authority of the scripture, uh, the way that we apply it for each generation and culture will of necessity be changing. And that's a really... Uh, important balance to get right. I just want to pause there for a minute and, uh, and, and sort of let you reflect on that. Uh, the way we reply, apply it for each generation and culture will be changing, but we hold to the authority, the ultimate unchanging authority of the Word of God. In other words, we are evangelical Pentecostal Christians. Okay, The Word of God, we believe, is our highest authority in all matters of faith and conduct. Uh, it is the unerring Word of God, and uh, it's very important that we always bear that in mind. And uh, it's why it's very important when we look at passages from scripture to do a really good um, what they call exegesis and to work through the who, why, what, where, when of any particular passage and uh, Graham again did that for us last week in an overall sense and what I'm going to try to do today is do a bit of a meander if you like um, through chapters 2 and 3 of First Peter. Uh, we'll see where we end up, oh, we've got a bit of time that's good, um, see where we end up and uh, um, focusing really on how we should live as a result of the time and the place that we live in. And I remember when I was um, starting out on my teaching career a few years ago now, um, we, was, we were in the Christian group, evangelical students out at Queensland Uni, and uh, there was a book that was we were encouraged to read uh, called uh, about education, about being teachers, and the title of that book was Servants or Subversives servants or subversives and uh, it was a wonderful book um, I can't remember the name of the guy who wrote it now but he was a professor in education for a very long time over in WA at the big university over there and he wrote a lot of really great stuff about um, uh, being a Christian within education but are we servants or subversives and I, I guess that's part of what my theme is to you today you know we can be a servant and just sort of go along and do what we're told um, or we can go to the other extreme and be a radical and get booted out probably um, but somewhere in between lies this place of being a subversive and there's a lot in these two chapters chapters two and three about how we should live as Christians in a way that subverts the uh, the current mindset so when Josh did a, a, an introduction of two Pe of one Peter two weeks ago with the theme of building temples 
uh, places where God's spirit can dwell as opposed to towers, which are the main man-made structures built to exalt ourselves. And these are the structures that inevitably fail. So he was talking to us about this contrast between building a temple, a place where God lives, and a tower, just a man-made structure. Now, those man-made structures can look pretty impressive compared to the invisible uh, nature of what God is doing throughout history. Uh, but don't be deceived. We are involved in the stuff that will last. We are involved in God's work that will last forever. If you think back to the time that First Peter was written, uh, it was written in a time when the Roman Empire was the great empire of the age, uh, stretching its reach uh, all over the world, the known world at that time. And when you compared, say, the Roman Empire with Christianity this little band of ragtag followers of Jesus Christ, if you'd been back then and you'd have asked the question, which of these two things will still be around in 2,000 years' time, it would have looked like it was going to be the Roman Empire, wouldn't it? And yet what the Roman Empire's gone and other empires have come and gone in that time. But Christianity still stands. I was just talking to a friend over here earlier about the fact that the Bible is still the number one bestseller. The Bible is still referenced as the book of wisdom throughout the world today. And here we are all that time later and it's actually Christianity that's still there. The Roman Empire has disappeared. It's such a human tendency, though, to want to set up, set up something physical that will last to make our mark. Uh, this week at school, it was interesting, a beautiful reflection seat, it was called, appeared outside my door uh, in the area, the courtyard adjacent to our chapel at school. For those of you who don't know me, I'm uh, uh, the chaplain at Somerville House Girls' School. So here's this beautiful seat, quite a nice seat, uh, but what was most prominent is the great big blonde, bronze plaque in the middle of it telling me who has donated this seat, you know, and, uh, and just getting their name there. And uh, at my school, you go into my chapel and all along the seats, the pews, there are little more brass plaques with uh, family names on them. And every now and again, someone, some random person rocks up and says, oh, I'd like to see where my family plaque is. And fortunately, we have a, a kind of a map of where each plaque is. And, and then there's stained glass windows. You know, I've, one of the things that was never in my original job description was um, uh, creating stained glass windows. It's really quite fascinating. And, and two is enough in the life of any chaplain, I've decided. But um, it's quite a process. But Again, there's this big issue about whose name should be on it. We want something physical, don't we? Okay, uh, and that's, that's a very human kind of a tendency. Graham finished last week with these verses um, from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Really wonderful. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans, but chosen by God and precious to him. You also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Uh, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And there is so much in these verses. If we look at the next couple of verses, the living stone, Jesus, the next couple of verses sort of expand that a bit. There we go. Um, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now to you who believe this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, uh, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Christ alone, cornerstone. We sing that song. We are cornerstone, Christian church. Jesus himself must always be the foundation of our faith. If we ever find ourselves focusing on anything else, whether it's structures, traditions, spiritual powers, spiritual gift, whatever, we've missed the boat. Anything other than Jesus himself, we're on dangerous ground. And our, our message always comes back uh, to the Christian gospel. Uh, and and that, that, that gospel that says that Jesus Christ came to earth uh, to die to save us from our sin. That on the third day he was raised again to life to prove that God accepted that 
that sacrifice to prove that he'd overcome death and that he is coming again one day to judge the living and the dead. That gospel is, is always there. And, and Peter will find throughout these chapters, every now and again, just keeps coming back and referencing us to Jesus, uh, to the gospel. But going back to those earlier couple of uh, verses, we are living stones. The church is people. It's not a building. And sometimes we can get carried away with facilities and buildings instead of people and programs. But the focus is always on people. Uh, I worked for many years at Scripture Union, a wonderful organisation here in Queensland, under the amazing leadership of a man called Jim Rawson. And uh, I wasn't there when he started with SU, but he started off with about seven staff. And uh, he sold every building that they had. They had a campsite and they had something else, I think. He sold it all because he believed in putting money into people and programs and staff and so on. And when he finished up at Scripture many years later, there were nearly 200 staff, including all the chaplains and so on. And it was a wonderful testimony to the fact that it's about people, not about buildings. And we've got a lovely big building here. I don't want to disrespect that. But as you look around, I think you would agree that our board's focus has very rightfully been on functionality rather than beauty and decoration. Is that a fair comment? Functionality. That's what happens when you're living in a warehouse, isn't it? But uh, it's about functionality rather than beauty. And if I can digress here for a minute, there's another verse here, one of my favourite verses uh, from 2 Corinthians where Paul talks about this uh, focus on people. He says, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Uh, or do we need, like some people, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone but on tablets of human heart. The sum total of our lives is not whether we've managed to get a building named after us, as some people are fairly obsessed about doing, but it is about the people whose lives we've influenced. The people whose lives we've influenced. A couple of years ago, I went to the funeral of um, one of the, another one of the amazing men I worked with at Scripture Union, Keith Drinkhall. And there must have been close to 1,500 people there. And if you'd have asked them to put their hand up to say that they'd either become a Christian or gone into Christian leadership because of Keith's influence, pretty much every hand in the building would have gone up. What a wonderful legacy to leave. And uh, we're about to farewell our, our fellow chaplain at BBC. And when I worked at BBC uh, for a number of years, you would have heard me talk about Graham Cole. And it's the same thing. It's the lives of these young men, the hundreds who've come to know Christ over the years, the dozens who are in ministry now. Uh, as a result of his ministry. Um, he's had uh, the embarrassment this week of having a new, they've created a new house in the house system at the school and they've named it after him instead of the headma latest headmaster, which is what they normally do. And he's embarrassed by that, but his name will live on forever. But they skipped four headmasters and they've named the new house Cole House. Um, and he's, you can see he's mortified by it because uh, that's not what he's about, you know. He's about the lives of people. The treasure that we look for is treasure stored up in heaven, not treasure on earth. And we, we know this because the church, in places where Christians are persecuted, the church meets in barns and caves and people's homes and whatever, yet consistently these are the places where the church is flourishing. Not in those magnificent cathedrals of Europe, beautiful as they are, now they're beautiful tourist destinations and music venues, aren't they? They're not really very often places of living, life-giving worship. Um, so it's, we're about people, we're not, not about um, buildings and so on. So from this point on in chapter 2 and 3, um, where I hope to land today, um, Peter is help, seeking to help his audience to know how to live in a society that is constantly hostile to them, where the, 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 the dominant worldview and paradigm is not a Christian one, uh, where Caesar is God, you know, not, um, not, not Jesus. Uh, and it's, it can be very different. Now, they had it a lot tougher in Peter's time than we did. Let's not kid ourselves. Um, you know, you could lose your life, you know, 
for being a Christian back then. You would if you got caught. Uh, we, um, but we, I think we can see that in our society now, we're heading in that direction. You know, we're acknowledging that you are a follower of Jesus and that you stand for Christian values will actually cost you something in the workplace these days. We are, I think, rapidly going that direction. I don't want to be a, a sort of a doomsday sayer, but I do think we need to be very careful and aware of the world around us and the forces that at work. And we might look at the census data, as some do, and be dismayed at how the number of people identifying as Christians in Australia has been significantly declining. I think the census in um, 2011, it was 62% or something, and then in 2016 it was 50 It's like, whoa, you know, where did all those people go? Uh, But in actual fact, um, I think it's actually good news because, uh, and I heard a fellow called Rory Shiner, if you ever get a chance to hear Rory or listen to his podcast, he's a great Australian Christian leader. Um, And I heard him talking about this in a seminar at Toowoomba recently. And it's, it's really interesting because what's happening is that for a long time, there are a large number of people in Australia who identify themselves as roughly Christian. You know, Australia was roughly Christian. And, uh, you know, the sort of people when it's time to fill out the census, you know, what are we, Dahl? Are we Presbyterian or Church of England? I can't remember. You know, roughly Christian, but many of them, of course, very nominal with a smaller number of committed followers of Jesus. So what's happening is that many of those nominal families are now saying no religion on the census um, because you actually now have to defend your faith if you're going to say that you're a Christian. You know, as someone who sort of spends my time sharing the gospel with people, it actually makes it easier because it removes a step from the process. If you're working with people, uh, and there's still people like this around in the area where I work, and, but there was a lot more, say, 13 years ago when I started at Somerville. If you're working with people who believe they are Christians, when they're actually only very nominal, the first step has to be to somehow, without being rude and offensive, um, to let them know that they're not Christians. You know, um, But now I find a lot more families and students who are very adamant about the fact, no, I'm not a Christian. I'm not religious. And it actually takes a step out of the process, so it actually makes life, life easier. And I think, in fact, what's actually happening um, in churches around the place, actual committed Christians and churches that are very Jesus and gospel-based who adhere to the Bible as the Word of God and take it serious and are serious about Christian mission uh, are actually doing quite well around the country. Uh, I see lots of signs of life and encouraging things. And some of the seminars I go to with these younger men, um, you know, speaking, and younger women as well too, people like Justine Toe, uh, Natasha Moore and so on, uh, it's very exciting to see where Christianity is at, where it's going in our country. Um, we just don't hear about them as much as we do about the, the significant um, scandals that have happened in other areas of the church. And it's no surprise that those denominations where there have been, has been a lot of nominality uh, on the decline, whereas other denominations are either um, growing or holding ground as such. Verses 6 to 8, um, going back to First Peter, um, they have something to say about... Uh, oh, no, sorry, back that way. There we go. Yes, there we go. Verses 6 to 8 actually have something to say to us about what's going on here. They highlight that Jesus acknowledges the cornerstone of our church um, uh, and our lives is precious to us, but is a stumbling block to people who don't believe. And why is that? Well, the cornerstone was that centre stone upon which everything else is built. And the question comes about what is central in your life? What is central in my life? What's central in our lives? Um, if Jesus is central to our lives, then we're building well. But if Jesus is, the, is not the cornerstone, people are putting all sorts of other things there, the block on which they build their lives, whether it's family, career, power, pleasure, adventure, coffee, uh, whatever. People have all sorts of different things as the central cornerstone of their lives these days, and it's not uh, a firm foundation. 
Um, but, but it's a wonderful message to Peter's audience who through their hardships must have felt like nobodies at the time. Uh, and it's, uh, it's, it's really important for us to understand that with Christ as our cornerstone, we're based on solid ground. So let's have a look at the next wonderful verses. I'm sure you've heard these before. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. As I read those words, I thought, first of all, how must have that sounded to the people back in Peter's day? You know, they were Jewish, they had started following this Rabbi Jesus, and they were now part of a group that was seen as different from Judaism. The, the term Christianity, you Christians, was, was a derogatory term when it was first used. Um, and here they were, they were, being, they were now being scattered um, out of their homes, out of Jerusalem, and other places being persecuted. They must have felt isolated and alone. And how, how precious these words would have been to them. Because that, that first verse references a whole lot of very important Old Testament concepts. If you look at that, you are a chosen people. That's what the Jewish people were meant to be, God's chosen people. And now Peter's saying, you, you know, Jesus' people, followers of Jesus are a chosen people, a royal priesthood. They had come from this system of priesthood where the priests were the mediator between them and God. And now we have direct access to God. God's special possession. All those promises made to Abraham about, I will be your God, you will be my people, now applied to them, that you may declare the praises of him who brought you out of darkness into his wonderful light. And then this wonderful verse that talks so much to our identity, and identity is such an issue, it was for them back there, and it is for us now too. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. What a wonderful message to us in an age where people struggle so much with identity. I think being a part of the Christian faith involves three things. It involves believing, um, belonging, and behaving. It's really those three Bs, isn't it? Uh, all three of those are very important to our faith. And that belonging, we belong to something wonderful. Uh, we belong to that universal um, you know, body of Christ. And we belong to local fellowships who are such a great encouragement to us. It's a wonderful description of our identity. The next couple of verses, 11 and 12, um, set up a, a lot of the teaching in the next two chapters, really, um, about how to live as strangers and aliens in the world. And in some ways, it sort of turns out to be uh, different, perhaps, than what, how we might expect. And Graham sort of intimated this last week when he said somewhere between railing against what's happening in the world and lying down in compromise lies this position of quietly living out an alternative way of doing life. And the verse from Jeremiah, if you read it just, you know, in a shallow way, looks like that too. Oh, you just go in there, build houses, you know, have families, plant vineyards. You can see that as a fairly passive thing. But in actual fact, I don't think that's right. It only appears that we are doing this quietly because I believe we're actually living lives. Our calling is to live lives that are totally subversive to the, to the dominant social structures and the worldviews of our time. In fact, it or social constructs, I should say, to the world um, views of our, and worldviews of our time. Being of subversive somehow appeals to me. That might be a bit naughty, I don't know. But I kind of like that idea. Um, I, perhaps as I've gone through my life, as I was reflecting on this, and I'm sort of reaching a fairly significant age this year. Oh, dear. It's good, isn't it, Chris? Oh, man, tell me what it's like on the other side. Um, but it's, uh, it's, as, I, as I, you sort of start to reflect, and I think, I think I've probably lived quite a lot of my life in subversion. <laughs> 
That's interesting, isn't it? Um, all the schools where I've taught at, and God has called me to schools that are not sort of specifically Christian schools where most of the staff are Christian, um, but all the places that I've taught and, and worked, apart from Scripture Union, which was very Christian, of course, um, I, I suppose that's the way I've tried to live in a way that fits in with the culture around me but at the same time subverts it, seeks to subvert it. And it's kind of a fun thing to do. You know, it's like a little secret you have to yourself. Um, I don't know, it amuses me. But, uh, you know, it's, 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 an interesting, it's an interesting way to live. And it re- requires being, you know, sort of in a sense laid back and looking like we are fitting in, but at the same time constantly aware that we have a higher purpose there. There's something else that we're meant to be doing. Um, and, it's, and that's what Peter's encouraging his readers to do, uh, to live such good lives, see, amongst the pagans, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits. So here we are, um, I suppose, uh, living in the world but not of it. And uh, he goes on here then to outline a number of different areas which I want to touch on uh, briefly today for you. Uh, the first one is about submitting to civil authorities, Okay, and uh, he talks a bit about why we should do that. Um, Not because we agree with everything they do, um, but really so that false accusations against Christians as troublemakers can be silenced. Um, Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as a supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Now, part of this in the democratic society in which we live is participating in the right way in the democratic process and making our voices heard about those tricky issues that are constantly arriving and that, again, very much you know, in, our, in, in our face today uh, in the media, partly because we have every right to do so as much as anyone else. And it's very important for Christians to participate in that process, not to withdraw ourselves from it. The difference is, I suppose, is that we'll figure out how to do that in a godly, respectful way, but just as passionately as those who express themselves in more violent and divisive ways. I'm not suggesting we should glue ourselves to the, uh, to the high main roads of Brisbane. Um, and, and as I look at what's happening in Hong Kong, I think it's quite fascinating. There, is, there are a lot of Christians behind the protests happening there. I don't know if you're aware of that. Um, and yet it's been taken over by a violent element um, and indications would be perhaps that some of those are actually planted by the Chinese government themselves to make uh, the, the, the more positive protesters look bad. But there's a way of protesting um, in a way that's, that's honouring to God, that is not sort of so violent. And, and the interesting thing, of course, is that democracy itself is a construct founded on Christian presuppositions. And democracy, some might say, is failing a bit around the world these days, and there might be particular reasons for that. But democracy, this idea of one vote per person, no matter how wealthy you are or how poor you are, uh, and these days, of course, for women as well and for uh, people from all different ethnic groups, um, democracy is, is, a, is a great declaration of the equality of all people. And that, of course, is a very Christian construct. It's interesting, I read something recently that was a, a statement by William Barr, the US uh, Attorney General um, in, a, in a law school, about how democracy can only succeed. The founding fathers of the USA understood that democracy could only succeed if, if, uh, if, if virtues were very strong in the general population. If you have a population that is not virtuous, that is selfish and evil, democracy is going to fail and fail badly. So the founding fathers were actually relying on the Christian nature uh, of the general population, the virtuous nature of the general population for democracy to succeed. 
I mentioned last time I spoke a DVD series called Jesus the Game Changer. And uh, democracy is one of the topics in that, how Christianity has influenced the Western world. Uh, and democracy is one of the things it talks about. We do need, uh, when we're operating in the public space, uh, and thank goodness there are lots of people doing this these days, we do need to learn to express our opinions in an intelligent and researched way. And even when you're doing this in the workplace and when we're standing up for things perhaps amongst our colleagues, carefully checking the facts of what we say rather than just quoting other people, reading widely, avoiding the offerings of conspiracy theorists so that we don't look like fools when the arguments we put forward are proven to be inaccurate, out of date or just plain wrong. It's embarrassing. Okay, when Christians are guilty of doing that. And sometimes we have been at different times. We're just jumping on bandwagons instead of checking things out very carefully. We're all responsible to know about what's going on in the world and to respond to it. So I find those verses about submitting ourselves not just to the good but also and fair bosses but also to those who are unjust and harsh a rather uncomfortable idea. I think that's in the next section here. Um, yeah, so when it talks about slaves, submit yourselves to your masters, not only to those who are good and considerate but also to those who are harsh. For it's commendable if someone bears up under the pain of unjust suffering because they are conscious of God. That is a tough call. That is a tough call. And uh, I lived with that for a number of years in my workplace, as I've shared before. Uh, and it's a really fine line between submitting yourself and respecting uh, the positions that people have, um, but being ready to fight the battles when they come up. It's about being very wise about knowing what to let go through to the keeper and what, to actually, what battles are actually important to fight. Uh, it's, it's, it's very, very challenging. Um, and and it's, again, it's about um, submitting the dominant mindset. Um, I always, uh, one of my favourite examples of this, and it was on TV, I noticed uh, again a couple of nights ago, is the movie Gladiator. And Russell Crowe's character in Gladiator, if you remember that movie, it's getting a bit old now. Uh, but here he was, a slave, you know, and a gladiator, and yet he had more power than the emperor. The emperor might have had all the positional power, but Russell Crowe had the support of the general population and uh, just from, his, from who he was. And I think that's the way it can be for us, you know, is that we can subvert the dominant uh, evil uh, authorities that we sometimes find within our society or our workplaces. But we can do it in, in little ways too. So when you're at work and your co-workers are whinging about the boss, um, even if it's well justified, um, help them to stay positive and to find ways around things as far as possible rather than just sort of butting their heads against uh, those above them all the time. When others in your workplace game the system, um, continue to serve with diligence and honesty instead. These are the ways we can subvert the current, the, the, the dominant mindset in our workplaces. If the workplace is full of gossip and slander, do your best to steer the conversation in more positive directions and keep things positive. Don't be the one who has to be punished for doing the wrong thing or unwise thing. Um, we've got enough foolish Christians around doing that for us anyway. Um, it does untold damage to our collective Christian witness, as we are aware. So there are little things that we can do which are actually really big things in the workplace to subvert the way things are done. Verses 21 to 25 give us the wonderful example of Jesus himself. Uh, and as we, if you, I'll just let you read through those, through those verses. Um, you know, when treated unjustly, he remained silent. He did not respond to insults, but trusted himself to God, believing that God's will would prevail. That's really difficult to do, isn't it? You know, we like to jump up and defend ourselves very quickly. But there were times when Jesus got very angry about the things that were happening around him. 
the commerce that was going on in the temple um, and un injustice that he saw. Um, but very often, and, and certainly when it came to his own death, his own trial, uh, he listened to the insults and trusted himself to God, listened to the things, the slanderous accusations that were coming against him and did not fight back. And this, I would think, uh, in, the, in, in being a Christian is one of the hardest things to do. Jesus teaches this again in the Sermon on the Mount, doesn't he? Turn the other cheek. You know, when someone takes your coat, give him your cloak as well. When they force you to walk one mile, walk another mile. Those things are incredibly difficult to do, not to fight back, to absorb the anger of others, as he did, to turn the other cheek. And there again in verse 24 and 25, I'm not sure if it's up there. Uh, yes, it is the gospel again. So Peter is reminding his, um, his readers again, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Um, I, again, I think I might have mentioned this last time, but I was recently read a book by Sam Chan, an Australian evangelist, about how there are many different metaphors for the gospel. And here we've got the metaphor of sheep returning to the shepherd, that sense of having been lost and coming back to the one who, who finds us. Now, chapter 3. I do love the way I end up with these kind of passages. A couple of years ago, thanks Charles, it was all about divorce and remarriage. I got that section from the Gospels that we were going through at the time. And now I have about wives submitting to their husbands. Yeah, there, thanks, yeah. Um, so I don't know why that's been left to the single, somewhat subversive female of our group. Um, what does this issue of submission mean? Uh, really, I, it's ridiculous. I don't know what to say here. Uh, it, it is a topic for a whole other... Sermon, huh? there you go, flick it back, <laughs> flick pass back. Um, for people who are perhaps a lot more qualified than I am to talk about that and perhaps less subversive. But I, suffice, it, suffice it to say today, I, want, I do want to comment on a couple of things about how this passage has been misused, I suppose, in, in my observation. While it is true, it has been misused. Uh, this does not give men the right to abuse their wives, either physically or psychologically, and I have to say that, I know it's a negative sort of thing to say, but unfortunately it has been used far too often within the church and outside the church as an excuse uh, for women to be abused. And, uh, and women have been told they have to put up with that. And this is a real indictment on us and it, it continues to be an issue over which we're criticised today. It does not give men the right to abuse their wives. It also does not give men the right to lord it over their wives because the command to the men here is about being considerate to their wives and treating them with respect. Okay, um, so you got it in there, yep, yep. Uh, so it, it, and, and that's very different. Uh, and that was unheard of in society in those days where women were little more than possessions and breeding machines. Um, women were seen to be, as were told to be seen as the co-heirs of eternal life, something perhaps we take for granted, but which at the time was completely radical. This is really overthrowing what the dominant mindset was at the time with regards to men and women. So uh, it, the command to the women is to submit to their husbands. That's not a command to the man to make the women submit to their husbands. All right? So that's not actually your business. Uh, it's actually your business to be considerate to your wives and to treat them with respect. Uh, and for women, it is submitting to their husbands. Another thing, it does suggest that when part, one partner in a marriage becomes a believer and the other isn't, that it's possible to win that partner over by the virtues of purity, reverence, gentleness and respect. 
And you may have a testimony to that end. Uh, I've seen that happen in some situations. You've got a married couple, uh, neither a Christian, um, and one becomes a Christian. And uh, this happened to the parents of a friend of mine. And uh, my friend became a Christian around about the same time I did. Uh, her uh, mother became a Christian and was very much involved in the renewal movement in the Uniting Church at the time. And uh, she got really excited and, you know, went out every night to meetings and did this and that. She had a very happy marriage, but her husband got a bit frustrated. He said, I never see you now. You're always out at these church things. I think you love this Jesus more than you love me. And uh, she, well, she didn't answer that question. Um, she did say to him, well, let's find a compromise. And the arrangement that she had with him was that uh, she would stop going to the nighttime meetings during the week and if he would come to church with her on Sunday. And, and eventually he became a Christian, which is really lovely. So it can work. I've got another friend, though, who became a Christian in her 30s um, uh, when, when she was married. And her husband gave her a hard time about that until the day he died, 35 years later. So it doesn't always work out, um, but uh, it, is, it is a great story when you can win people over. Um, and it doesn't mean, though, that as a Christian, you can marry someone who's not a Christian. Don't be misled about that. This is a situation where someone becomes a believer and the partner isn't. But it's lovely when the other person can be led to Christ in that situation. And in this next section here, we have this wonderful list uh, of practical things to do to live in challenging times when we feel like strangers in the world. Uh, and the, the lovely thing about this list of things is that they are all things that we can aspire to. They're all things that we can work on. And as I go through them, and they're, they're in the scriptures up there on the screen, but I'll kind of summarise them for you. It's, it's, just think about your own life and, and, and how we fit in here. And there are some where you might be doing well, some where uh, there's a challenge, um, some where we can pray for you about them. But these things here are, are what we do uh, to subvert that dominant mindset. We live in harmony with each other. We're sympathetic people. We love as brothers. We're compassionate and humble. We do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but instead with blessing. Now, these things sound like motherhood statements, don't they? But they, they are radical, actually, when you think about the way the world operates these days. You start, even that, just that last one, don't repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but instead with blessing. It, it might be actually, yes, there we go. Yes, yes, there we go. Um, so it is, um, you know, it, it's a, an amazing thing. It's simple, and yet it has such a, makes such a difference to be like that. Keep your tongue from evil and deceitful speech. Turn from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. These are all things we can aspire to. You know, we can all actually um, work on these kind of things in our lives. Yep, there's a bit more there that adds to it. But I'm just summarising that for you. These are all things that we too can aspire to. I'm going to finish up today with uh, one of my favourite passages, uh, and that's the next bit. I'm glad I got to it. I was a bit worried I wasn't going to get there, um, but it, that's why I volunteered to do this section, Josh, uh, all for these verses. Uh, some of my favourite verses, um, in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behaviour in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for all, once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body but made alive in the spirit. Those earlier verses, are we people of hope? We're told to be always ready to answer, to give an answer to anyone who asks us to give the reason for the hope that we have. Hope is one of those things in incredibly short supply in our world today, I believe. Um, hope about the future. 
uh, standard, even though standards of living are high, medical treatments keep us alive longer, but there are so many people out there who I don't think know why they're living. They don't understand why and they struggle to find meaning and purpose. And thus we have an epidemic of suicide amongst young people, but not just young people, uh, amongst others as well. And there's a lot of it happening out there. It doesn't get reported in the media because they're worried about copycat uh, syndrome. But it is just tragic when someone who appears to have a lot going for them just decides they really don't have a reason to live. Are we ready to give an answer for the hope that we have um, what is our hope? Our hope is in the Lord Jesus, isn't it? We are hopeful because we belong to a community of faith. We're hopeful because we serve a Lord who is the Lord of all and who is good. We're hopeful because in the future we know God has everything in control. It's not ultimately anything else in this world that's going to determine the future. It's what Jesus has said in the Bible and we have enough there to know that we have hope for the future. Are we ready to give an answer? when people ask us for an answer to the reason of the hope that we have? Have we prepared ourselves by knowing the scriptures, spending time with God in prayer, reading widely and discerningly, building our faith through corporate worship? I bumped into a young man uh, a couple of years ago, uh, who was, I think, probably in his late 30s now, who was in year 10 at BBC, my first year there at the school. A lovely Christian fellow, now Baptist pastor uh, here in Brisbane. And uh, we were on a scripture union camp, the training week camp. I'd just gone up to visit for the day. And he said, I want to catch up with you. At that stage, he was pastoring out in central Queensland somewhere. He said, I wanted to have a chat with you. And uh, when he was in year 10, you might remember me telling this story. Um, I, we, we actually prepared a number of the boys to do Christianity Explained with the younger boys. Uh, there was a teacher called Sean Morrison. Some of you might know Sean, now principal of Brisbane Christian College. Uh, Sean is passionate for the gospel and passionate for discipleship. And Sean said to me, I've got these year eight boys who really need to know about Jesus and I think they're ready to become Christians. How about we do Christian Explained? It was my first year at BBC. And he said, but let's not us do it. Let's train the older boys to do that. So we took some year 10, 11 and 12 boys and we trained them to do Christianity Explained. I'd, I'd sit with them one day and we'd, um, we'd look at the lesson. Then the next day they'd do it with the boys and then next week we'd do, see how the first one went. We'd prepare for the second lesson and on we went. And this fellow, John, uh, said to me at, at, when I saw him at this camp, he said, thank you so much for that. He said, we were really deep-ended. I don't know what you thought you were doing. We're 15 years old, sharing our faith. He said, but he said, I've, I've now as a pastor come across people in their 40s and 50s who's, who've never sat down and, and explained the gospel to someone, who've never shared their faith. And you had us doing it at 15, 16. And that is such a good thing. That set us up for life. And I think, are we ready? You know, do we know our scriptures? Uh, have we spent time in prayer? Um, are we reading so that and, and building our faith through corporate worship? And then are we putting ourselves in situations where people are asking the questions? You know, if you spend your whole life um, amongst Christian people and never amongst people who aren't Christians, um, you know, you don't have that opportunity. If we're in our workplaces and we're, um, you know, we're thinking, well, we have to be careful how we go about things here. Absolutely. But pray for opportunities. And I believe those opportunities will come. Uh, and I was talking to Kane about this last week. Kane's a chaplain as well too, um, chatting to him about his chaplaincy. And we were talking about the concept that I've shared with you before about creative loitering about the fact that it's when you're hanging around places, uh, for me it's sports events, music events and, and whatever else, you know, that's when you get these amazing conversations. That's when you've got the parents there and they're on the sideline watching their kid and, you know, um, like yesterday I spent five hours at badminton up at Ipswich Girls Grammar, not because I'm particularly passionate about badminton, but um, partly because I wanted to support the girls from school, but partly here I am amongst all the Asian parents from our school, an opportunity I rarely get and I can chatter away to them about this, that and the other thing and follow up on conversations from the previous year. Are we putting ourselves into the situations where people are asking the questions? You never know when a significant question is going to come up. 
And that didn't come up for me yesterday, but at times, bang, someone suddenly slips from, you know, how's the weather to, um, you know, well, we were talking last night about the second coming. You know, that doesn't happen very often, but it did happen once. Um, but, you know, things about why, why are you a chaplain and why do you love what you do? Um, and then next uh, is are we answering with gentleness and respect um, when, we give, when we give answers or do we prefer a good argument? And that's a real danger too. I know it was a danger for me as a young Christian. I love to debate about the faith, but uh, really we have to answer with respect. And uh, I'll finish with verse 18 because, and I'll, I'll give you a look at the last few verses in the chapter, which might seem a bit incomplete. But if anyone else can summarise uh, what on earth that means, you're doing better than me. Suddenly it gets a little bit weird. And so I won't even try to, to, to sort of talk too much about those passages. But just going back for a minute to verse 18, here it is again, the gospel. And again, in verse 18, Peter summarises the gospel. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. Over and over again, he just keeps referencing Jesus, referencing the work of Christ on the cross. This time with that metaphor of substitutionary atonement, payment for our sins, um, to bring us from a state of unrighteousness to a place of righteousness. So in summary today, and I know we've been sort of paddling around there and getting through quite a lot of scripture, let's think about the way we live. Are we servants or are we subversives? In this age when more and more we are facing hostility, literal hostility for our faith, what are we going to do about that? Do we just lie down and give up and retreat into a kind of a safe place? Um, or do we sort of become radicals and make a big noise and get ourselves shot down? Or do we operate somewhere in the middle there? Somewhere in the middle, not being servants, not being radicals, but being subversives and staying in there, hanging in there with our culture and working really hard to live in a way that's different, that subverts the dominant mindset uh, and that draws people to God, always focusing on Christ, our cornerstone, the one who brought us from death to life. Let's pray. And uh, I'm going to pray that God will help us with whatever it is from all of that that you might take as a takeaway today um, and that he will use that to, to help you in your life as a subversive out there. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you have called us uh, not just to be servants, not just to float through this world worrying about what's going on, but to actually do something about it. Show us how in our lives, in our families in our workplaces, in our schools, our universities, wherever we are, show us how we too can be subversives and not just servants. Show us how to be those people who are always ready to give a reason for the hope we have within us and to do it with gentleness and respect. Help us with those aspects of what we've heard today that we find difficult, like not responding insult with insult, like being respectful to a boss or a supervisor who is not a just person. Show us how to do that and yet to remain true to you and to remain faithful to you. Thank you that we are part of a community that holds Christ as the cornerstone, our living hope, the one upon which our community and our very lives are built. And help us to live faithfully as those living stones, part of that community, who serve you and who love you. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. This was produced by Cornerstone Christian Resources. It is deemed copyright and may be used by permission. For further information about Cornerstone Christian Resources, please visit the Cornerstone website.